Chapter 8, Part 1. Muddling Through. August to October 2003. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 8. Muddling Through. August to October 2003. Page 195. As attacks mounted in the summer of 2003, so too did pressure from Washington, D.C. on the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, to produce a strategy to stabilize the country, reduce the coalition military footprint, and transition the reins of government to Iraqi control quickly, with oversight from the United Nations, or U.N.-led international community. Efforts to plan the new stabilization campaign and build capacity within the Iraqi government and military were constrained by short time horizons, troop shortages, and unrealistic expectations of both the coalition and Iraqi leadership to manage an increasingly complex and hazardous environment. These efforts were further hindered by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's spectacular attacks against coalition partners and the new Iraqi Governing Council's even more restrictive debothification policy. The theater-wide focus on hunting down foreign fighters, weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, and former regime leaders masked the seriousness of the threat posed by intra-Shia fighting and the rise of Muqtada Sadr's militia. As these threats gathered, CJTF-7 and the CPA struggled to launch the security, reconstruction, governance, and security assistance activities that were needed to stabilize the country. Difficulties in Formulating a New Campaign Page 195 Like many other American leaders, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Richard B. Myers was concerned by the three months of rising instability that followed the April toppling of Saddam Hussein's regime. Seeking confirmation from U.S. leaders in Iraq that the military operations there nested within a viable, broader strategy, Myers instructed General Tommy Franks in early July 2003 to work with the CPA to produce an integrated strategic campaign plan for stability and support operations in Iraq. He indicated that Secretary of Defense, or SecDef, Donald Rumsfeld had instructed Ambassador L. Paul Bremer along similar lines. Myers specified that Franks's campaign should be ready to present to himself and Rumsfeld by July 23rd. Franks retired four days later, handing command of CENTCOM to General John Abizade without responding to Myers' request, and the newly installed Abizade did not take up the task of writing a military strategy for Iraq until August. Conversely, Bremer published a 57-page Strategic Plan and Vision for Iraq laying out his vision of what the coalition needed to accomplish in security, essential services, economic growth, and governance on July 22nd. These four key areas were similar to those in Eclipse 2 and were soon adopted by CENTCOM, CJTF-7, and most of the multinational divisions, or MNDs, under CJTF-7 command. The CPA's strategic plan, however, was more a list of tasks than a strategy with overly optimistic assessments of the current state of affairs. Most of the document focused on the need for future improvements in restoring essential services. Much less emphasis was placed on security, the economy, and Iraqi governance. Apart from advocating an, quote, unprecedented joint civilian and military planning process, end quote, the document did not mention the coalition military troops that would ultimately be responsible for executing those tasks. 
At CENTCOM, Abizade's approach was more organized, built around, quote, five eyes, end quote. Internationalization, Iraqization, improvement of intelligence, infrastructure construction, and information and strategic communications, the areas Abizade believed were essential for winning Phase 4 of the Iraq campaign. In late August, the CENTCOM commander pressed CJTF-7 and CPA to formulate a joint strategy under which, as international support and the numbers of capable Iraqi security forces increased, the United States and its partners could gradually withdraw their military forces into what he called, quote, strategic overwatch, end quote. In Abizade's plan, Iraqi security forces, supported by a deterrent force of two U.S. Army brigades, special operations units, and strategic air and maritime assets, would assume responsibility for Iraq's internal and external security, and U.S. troop levels in Iraq and Kuwait would decrease from a high of 155,000 in the fall of 2003 to fewer than 30,000 by the end of 2004. While CJTF-7 began building its own plans based on CENTCOMs, there were essential differences between Baghdad and Tampa. Unlike Abizade, who advocated quickly putting the main effort in the hands of the future Iraqi government and security forces, Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez intended first to establish security by conducting offensive operations against the remaining paramilitary forces in Iraq and hunting down former regime leaders on CENTCOM's deck of cards, a focus that most CJTF-7 subordinate divisions shared. In addition, CJTF-7 complained to CENTCOM that the CPA turbulent turnover and its overly tight control of resources were limiting the coalition's capacity to create capable Iraqi local governments and security forces in any case. The undermanned CPA staff worked on 90-day rotations that hampered any continuity of policy and relationships and prevented the organization's leaders from developing an, quote, accurate appreciation of the situation, end quote. While CJTF-7 devoted its scarce resources to filling offices and providing staff for CPA and enabling important operations like the exchange of Iraq's currency, CPA officials were reluctant to decentralize the sizable funds and other resources at their disposal down to the provincial level, creating a disconnect between the means and ends for the military units and governance teams charged with executing Bremer's strategic plan. The situation was compounded by the fact that CJTF-7's future planning was frequently overtaken by events on the ground, so much so that the headquarters in its year of existence never completed a written campaign plan to synchronize the six divisions it was overseeing. This absence of operational guidance, combined with Sanchez's tendency to endorse the various divisions' initiatives in their disparate regions rather than tell them what to do, meant that his division commanders were left mostly to their own devices, managing their own areas and coordinating laterally on enemy organizations or reconstruction projects that crossed coalition unit boundaries. Years later, General Raymond T. Odierno recalled that from his perspective as a division commander in 2003, he received no operational guidance and had no sense of unity of command or a theater-level effort synchronizing division operations across the country. As a result, Odierno noted, the 4th Infantry Division's 2003-2004 to rotation had been a year-long, quote, movement to contact, end quote a scenario in which divisions found themselves reacting to events on the ground and unable to seize the initiative. For his part, Sanchez believed his place was at Bremer's side for much of his command tour, leaving his CJTF-7 deputy, Major General Walter Wojdakowski, to interact with the division commanders, his peers in rank, on operational matters. 
Sanchez also had no authority to countermand Bremer's orders and policies in writing, meaning that he was unable to issue written guidance on how units should manage the difficulties created by debothification and the disbanding of the Iraqi security apparatus, or on the development of the Iraqi police and the new Iraqi army. The result was that both operational and tactical commands spent the balance of 2003 reacting to near-term crises without placing their activities in the context of a longer campaign. The Iraqi Governing Council On July 13th, CPA Regulation 6 recognized a new 25-member Iraqi Governing Council as the principal body of the Iraqi Interim Administration, pending the establishment of an internationally recognized representative government by the people of Iraq. Ambassador Ryan C. Crocker, a senior U.S. diplomat, was responsible for organizing a council that would be acceptable to the Iraqi people, but he soon found that the leadership body and composition of the council were contentious issues. Having hoped the Iraqi Governing Council could quickly become the executive arm of the new Iraqi government, Crocker and other U.S. officials were dismayed when the Governing Council's members decided that each of the nine members of the Executive Council would take turns leading the group for one month, beginning with Ibrahim al-Ja'afari of the Dawa Party in August 2003. The creation of the Iraqi Governing Council was also problematic in that it immediately pitted expatriate elites against Iraqi leaders who had remained inside Iraq. Despite the fact that the 25 members were from diverse ethno-religious backgrounds, it was not nearly as representative as the CPA had envisioned. Rather, it was heavily populated by expatriates and reflected its creator's image of an Iraqi society rather than that of the Iraqi people. Two of the most prominent non-expatriate Iraqi leaders were excluded. The coalition considered but decided against including Harith al-Dari, the head of the Association of Muslim Scholars. Coalition leaders also considered including Muqtada Sadr, or one of his representatives, but decided to exclude him because of his role in the murder of Abdul Majid al-Khoi in April, after which the spurned Sadr denounced the Iraqi Governing Council as an illegitimate, foreign-imposed body. Additionally, as former Ba'ath Party members were barred from participating in the government by CPA Order 1 and the most prominent Sunni leaders were Ba'ath Party members, the Council's creation gave the Sunni community the sense that it was being pointedly marginalized. Sunnis in northern Iraq complained to Odierno and David Petraeus that they did not see the Iraqi Governing Council as legitimate because of its limited Sunni representation, and the generals reported to CJTF7 that the popular perception of Sunni disenfranchisement was becoming a major problem for them. Odierno further warned that the ambivalent majority of Sunnis in the north would, quote, go to the other side, end quote, if the trend continued. Bremer pushed forward with plans to transition sovereignty to Iraqi authorities in spite of these problems, and on September 7th, published a description of his planned, quote, seven steps to sovereignty, end quote, in the Washington Post. Bremer proposed that the Iraqi Governing Council should lead the writing of a new constitution, followed by elections, the subsequent dissolution of the CPA, and the transition to a normal diplomatic mission in Iraq led by the State Department. These steps came as an unpleasant surprise to Iraqi leaders like Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who wanted an elected, sovereign Iraqi government in place to write the country's new constitution. They also startled U.S. officials in Washington who were unprepared for Bremer's public declaration of a transition process that most senior American leaders had not yet endorsed. The Resistance Gains Momentum Page 198 the Sadrist Challenge 
As the summer of 2003 waned, Abizaid became increasingly concerned about sectarianism, Iraq's Shia South, and Iranian regime influence in Iraq. On August 3rd, he outlined these issues to Rumsfeld and Myers, noting that, quote, the most significant long-term threat is the sectarian nature of Iraqi society, i.e. ethnic, religious, and tribal factionalism, end quote, and described, quote, intra-Shia tensions between the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, Dawa, and Sadr, end quote, and Iranian efforts to delegitimize the coalition as major sources of instability. These thoughts, however, did not reach CJTF-7, and coalition military leaders inside Iraq were unprepared for what happened next. On August 13, 2003, Muqtada Sadr's constituents staged a large demonstration in Sadr City after U.S. helicopters allegedly flew over a tower where the Sadrists were flying religious flags. Someone in the crowd fired a rocket-propelled grenade at 1st Armored Division soldiers, killing one and wounding four. This incident, combined with evidence that Sadr had had a hand in the Hoy killing in April, prompted Wolfowitz and Bremer to ask Sanchez to generate military options for seizing Sadr. Sanchez, however, pushed back on the idea. In a private email to Abizaid on August 20th, Sanchez itemized the pros and cons of detaining Sadr, noting that it was impossible to put an Iraqi face on the operation and that Sadr's arrest, injury, or death could make a martyr of him and spark violence, creating a, quote, chaotic period of instability that would divert resources and play right into the hands of former regime loyalists, end quote. Sanchez also judged that Sadr himself posed no immediate threat because the young cleric's ability to muster large numbers of people rapidly was unclear, and since the Hausa, or Shia clerical seminary in Najaf, supposedly was already engaged in a campaign to contain and marginalize him. The CJTF-7 commander was then preoccupied with the devastating suicide attack on the UN headquarters in Baghdad that had occurred the previous day, and was disinclined to arrest Sadr and risk opening a second front with a militant Shia movement. Given the CJTF-7 commander's opposition, coalition leaders tabled the matter, though it would return to the fore soon enough. Zarqawi seizes the initiative. CJTF-7's immediate concerns in early August 2003 did not revolve around a new campaign plan or the long-term problem posed by Shia militants or the Iranian regime, but rather around the increasing numbers of attacks carried out by groups categorized as former regime elements and other Sunni insurgent terrorist organizations. As CJTF-7 struggled to stabilize Iraq with its multinational partners, Zarqawi moved forward with his strategy to fracture the coalition, isolate the United States from international support, and ultimately cause the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq. The initial wave of attacks began with the car bombing of the Jordanian embassy on August 7th, followed by the successive attacks against the UN headquarters and the assassination of SCIRI leader Mohammed Bakr al-Hakim at the end of the month. Although the UN vowed to continue its mission with a smaller number of people, CENTCOM became pessimistic about obtaining more international military donors for the mission in Iraq. Quote, After the UN bombing, it seems unlikely that we will get the international forces we need for the next rotation, end quote, wrote Abizade's advisors on August 27th. Quote, we should, therefore, bias our efforts in favor of Iraqization, end quote, meaning that Zarqawi's attacks had already altered the coalition. Hakim's assassination marked Zarqawi's first major attempt to provoke the Iraqi Shia parties into a violent confrontation against their Sunni enemies. 
Although Abizade's advisors believed that Hakim's assassination could draw Sadr and SCIRI closer together in an anti-coalition alliance, the exact opposite scenario unfolded. The CPA and CJTF7 had bestowed much of their attention on SCIRI as one of the only pro-coalition Islamist Shia political parties to have national appeal, and this relationship strengthened after SCIRI gave the appearance of pacifying a large anti-coalition protest at Hakim's funeral on September 2nd. Sanchez and other CJTF7 leaders developed close ties with Hakim's successor and Moqtada Sadr's principal rival, Abdul Aziz al-Hakim, to the point of having almost daily discussions with the new SCIRI leader. The perception that the coalition favored the expatriate Hakim hardened Sadrist sentiment against both SCIRI and the coalition. Thus, Zarqawi's Najaf attack had the unintended consequence of bringing SCIRI and the coalition closer together and turning the major Shia parties further against each other rather than immediately igniting a sectarian civil war. Troubles in the Sunni Triangle In August and September, the 82nd Airborne Division's headquarters and its 3rd Brigade returned to Iraq to assume control of Anbar from the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, which in turn moved to the task of securing Iraq's western border. The 82nd Airborne Division Commander Major General Charles H. Swanick moved his division headquarters to Ramadi to interact more closely with the provincial governor and the province's influential sheikhs, and he was augmented there by the 1st Brigade, 1st Infantry Division, and a National Guard battalion from Florida. The 82nd also inherited a battalion from the 10th Mountain Division in Iskandaria in the eastern portion of the division's area of operations. On September 12, 82nd Airborne Division soldiers on a nighttime patrol near a Jordanian field hospital in Fallujah observed a police patrol chasing a BMW that had just fired on an Iraqi police station. The police patrol turned around when it realized it would not catch the BMW, but the Americans mistook the police for insurgents and opened fire, killing at least eight policemen and a Jordanian military officer who was with them. The 82nd soldiers also damaged the hospital and wounded several other Jordanians in the area. This incident, which echoed the 82nd Airborne Division's deadly clash with the Fallujah mob in April, came during a period in which Anbari sheikhs began to realize the coalition was not going to empower them, and it inflamed local emotions in areas that had quieted down after a restive summer. It also compounded Anbari's resentment over coalition raids and detentions. The September 12th Fallujah incident was also emblematic of the greater problem the U.S. divisions were having in balancing the winning of hearts and minds with the need to protect themselves among regions and societies they did not fully understand. The challenge of finding the true enemy actors, combined with mounting casualties and insufficient troop numbers, had the potential to prompt emotionally driven reactions rather than the precise operations necessary to reduce collateral damage and maintain the Iraqi citizens' support. Wrestling with the potent insurgency in Saddam's home territory of Salahuddin province, the 4th Infantry Division began to receive criticism for its tactics, which groups such as the International Red Cross claimed were heavy-handed. The division was conducting neighborhood sweeps without actionable intelligence and arresting angry Iraqis who would join the insurgency after being released, the Red Cross charged. From the division's perspective, however, its clearing tactics were necessary in a region where support for Saddam and hostility toward the coalition had started out intense and had only increased. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen D. Russell, one of Odierno's battalion commanders in Tikrit, concluded Saddam's hometown and the surrounding areas detested the Americans and would only respond to demonstrations of strength, 
an assessment many other commanders in Salah Hadin and Diyala provinces came to share as insurgent attacks mounted. Unlike the 101st Airborne Division in Mosul, the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad, and the British 1st Armored Division in Basra, the 4th Infantry Division had no major urban centers in its area, which was dotted with small to medium-sized towns spread over a vast swath of land of 20,000 square kilometers. Insurgent attacks in the division's area often took the form of indirect fire on the far-flung unit's operating bases, and the division thus used counterfire to respond more than other divisions did. By the end of his division's tour, Odierno was controlling 13 counterfire radars, virtually as many as a standard U.S. Army Corps, and covering as much territory as a corps would have been expected to cover before 2003. Regardless of the vast differences among the division headquarters, over time most units came to the realization that after engagement with local leaders, the nature and quality of their soldiers' interactions with the Iraqis could make or break stability operations. In urban Nineveh, Petraeus restricted the use of artillery and artillery counterfire because of the potential for collateral damage, and also eschewed cordon and sweep operations, in which tactical units detained large numbers of military-aged males in a single operation, in favor of so-called cordon and knock operations, in which 101st Airborne Division soldiers would knock on the doors of suspects' residences and ask them to turn themselves in to the proper unit. One helpful innovation in division operations was the use of female soldiers to search Iraqi women at checkpoints and to participate in search operations. After meeting with local tribal leaders and mukhtars, some commanders also began allowing sheikhs to keep women under house arrest or sending female soldiers on cordon and knock operations in order to manage the female family members of detainees and female detainees as required. These efforts were crucial to protecting the Iraqi male notion of wasta, a combination of influence, honor, and clout. By themselves, these measures were not sufficient to impact positively on the entire theater. The September 12th incident in Fallujah alarmed Abizaid, who was already anxious about the coalition's messaging to the Iraqi people. Abizaid believed that harsh tactics by coalition soldiers hurt the U.S. reputation in the global war on terrorism, and, after the Fallujah shootings, he spoke in person with Sanchez and the commanders of each U.S. division to admonish them about the danger of alienating the Iraqi population. Also concerned about alienating the Iraqi people, Sanchez subsequently made a deliberate decision to forego large-scale offensive operations in favor of smaller, more precise operations, a step that added to the perception that CJTF-7 was abdicating its responsibility to organize the mission at the operational level of war. Even so, CJTF-7 did organize some core-level operations during fall 2003. On October 3rd, CJTF-7's Operation Chamberlain aimed to disrupt foreign fighter networks and routes from Syria into Iraq. The 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment moved from Fallujah to the Syrian border to oversee Iraqi manned border points and to deny enemy infiltration from Syria, was joined by small contingents of other units, including the 101st Airborne Division, which cracked down on smugglers in the Sinjar area. The U.S. units were to prevent all non-Iraqi military-aged males, 16 to 45 years old, from entering Iraq from Syria except those clearly engaged in legitimate commerce. Unfortunately, Operation Chamberlain was largely ineffective in sealing the border. Quote, It was pointless to move forces out to the Syrian border because there were too many ways around it, recalled Colonel Derek J. Harvey, noting that CJTF-7 did not have the capability to fully seal the border as it was already far under strength in the higher priority areas. End quote.
Operation Chamberlain was the first of many surges of coalition troops from the country's center to its border with Syria, none of which had a lasting impact on the militant groups that used the border zone as a sanctuary. Militant groups did not need to travel far to find the materials they needed to wreak havoc inside Iraq. The enormous amount of ammunition scattered across Iraq remained problematic for CJTF-7 because resistance organizations had easy access to small arms, rocket-propelled grenades, and artillery shells with which to attack coalition military targets, Iraqi civilian leaders, and infrastructure. By mid-September 2003, CJTF-7 units collectively identified more than 600,000 tons of ammunition in U.S.-only sectors, including 102 large ammunition caches and 3,000 ammunition sites, requiring more than 10 tractor-trailer loads to move within the 4th Infantry Division's territory alone. In Anbar, soldiers of the 82nd Airborne Division and 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment counted more than 90 ammunition depots in addition to the arms predispersed throughout the province. By September 8, 2003, Major General Martin Dempsey's 1st Armored Division in Baghdad had cleared over 1,900 munitions caches. Odierno's engineers expended all of their C-4 explosives by September. He proposed letting a contract to assist with ammunition disposal, after which CJTF-7 and the Army Corps of Engineers received funds to contract those missions and relieve U.S. soldiers of the task. More debothification. Discontent in the Sunni Triangle deepened as the expanded Iraqi Governing Council released a new debathification policy on September 20th, calling for all Level 4 and above Ba'ath Party members to be fired immediately, rendering any exceptions Bremer, Sanchez, or division commanders had previously made null and void. Bremer urged the Governing Council to introduce due process and case-by-case exemptions rather than the total exclusion of former Ba'athist leaders to no avail. Despite the draconian nature of the Iraqi Governing Council's measure, Bremer, perceiving himself bound to transition the reins of government to a sovereign Iraqi authority as quickly as possible, transferred full responsibility for debothification to the Council on November 4, 2003. The Governing Council promptly set up a debothification committee led by Ahmad Chalabi's nephew, Salem Sam Chalabi, a move that Sanchez later recalled, quote, might have been the worst possible choice because, from the very beginning, Ahmad Chalabi was adamant that no Baathists would ever be allowed back into government service. And that's one reason the whole debothification order became a catastrophic failure. End quote. Ahmad and Sam Chalabi wasted no time in exercising their new power, firing 28,000 teachers and hundreds of civil servants for alleged Baath party ties in November alone. Shocked by the committee's aggressiveness, Bremer attempted to rein in Ahmad Chalabi through the Iraqi Governing Council behind closed doors, but was unsuccessful. Chalabi, at least, was unwilling to relinquish the opportunity to use his access to Ba'ath Party records to extort and blackmail former Ba'athists for financial and political gain. Speaking to army historians years later, Bremer regretted his decision to hand control of the debothification effort to Chalabi and other Iraqi politicians, adding in retrospect that he should have given the portfolio to a panel of Iraqi judges instead. The Chalabi's new wave of Baathist firings came as most coalition divisions had begun to manage the fallout from the earlier CPA Orders 1 and 2. The new firings, which extended to a large number of Iraqis who were already partnered or even employed by coalition units, threw the civil administration of Iraq's Sunni provinces into disarray again. The development worsened the Sunnis' already intense fears that they were being cut out of Iraqi public life. 
It also left thousands unemployed without hope of being able to get new jobs and therefore provided a host of new recruits for Sunni resistance groups. The division commanders with large Sunni populations in their areas, Petraeus, Odierno, Dempsey, and Swanick, argued strongly against the Iraqi Governing Council's new policy and the Debothification Committee's actions, with Petraeus sarcastically remarking to Chalabi that if he insisted on permanently disenfranchising so many people, he might as well throw them all in jail. Unmoved, Chalabi retorted, quote, At least they can eat there. End quote. With CJTF-7 forbidden to provide formal guidance on managing the fallout from the more restrictive debothification policies, divisions were left to develop their own consequence management strategies. In Anbar, Swanick and leaders in the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment developed a relationship with a group of 20 former Sunni general officers living in the province. These officers, for a small sum, were assisting them with local projects and educating them on the needs and attitudes of the province and its citizens, and whom Swanick was trying to get to command segments of the Ramadi Police and Anbari Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, or ICDC, battalions. After the 82nd Airborne Division could no longer formally pay these officers for their advice, Swanick established a, quote, Gray Beard Society, end quote, consisting of these retired officers that he could now continue to meet with and pay for their assistance building the new Iraqi security forces in Ramadi and Fallujah. The 101st Airborne Division created and funded a similar former Baathist advisory body in northern Iraq and used some legal loopholes to continue paying salaries to former Baathists who were working in key administrative roles or as university professors. Other units affected by the additional Iraqi Governing Council debothification requirements attempted continued engagement with former Baathists who had been helpful, but the damage was already becoming permanent in Sunni Iraq. Challenges Determining the Makeup of the Insurgency The brewing trouble with Iraq's Sunni population was not necessarily reflected in CJTF-7's operational priorities, which remained focused mainly on capturing the former regime leaders on the CENTCOM deck of cards list. There was progress to show on that line of effort. On August 21, 2003, one month after the operation that resulted in the deaths of Saddam's sons Uday and Kusay in Mosul, Special Operations Forces captured Ali Hassan al-Majid, or Chemical Ali, north of Baghdad. Chemical Ali's capture was hailed as a major success because coalition leaders believed that many Iraqi Shia were reluctant to cooperate openly with the coalition out of fear that he might continue from his hiding place the reprisals he carried out in 1991. Number 27 on the deck of cards list, former Minister of Defense General Sultan Hashim, fled to his family's residence in Mosul after the regime collapse. Encouraged by the new Nineveh government leadership, who had had positive interactions with 101st Airborne Division leaders, members of Sultan Hashim's family approached the 101st Airborne Division leadership through interlocutors, claiming that Hashim was prepared to surrender to U.S. forces. The 101st Airborne Division subsequently drafted a surrender memorandum promising fair treatment, which it sent to Hashim through his family. He surrendered at a 101st Airborne Division compound on September 19th. After Hashim was sent to Baghdad, however, the Iraqi Governing Council demanded that he be hanged, a request the coalition fought. Meanwhile, one of Hashim's relatives, an influential leader in the Ta'i Confederation, wrote increasingly hostile papers advocating Hashim's release, which had the unfortunate impact of leading the coalition to arrest him. This arrest outraged the Ta'i tribe, adding to the brewing Sunni tribal resentment in Iraq. 
These significant captures did not take place quickly enough for Rumsfeld, who in early November wrote to Abizade and Myers expressing his frustration with CENTCOM's inability to capture Saddam, his senior lieutenants, and Osama bin Laden quickly. In response, Abizade wrote to Myers on November 10th, quote, This is really an incredible sort of communication. Is this some sort of historical I told you so? Is this to cover impending bad news? It is professionally insulting. Can't quite fathom why Secretary Rumsfeld doesn't understand. We follow the Secretary's orders and guidance without complaint or question. We accord him great respect. A little bit of respect in return would do wonders for teamwork in this fight. End quote. In reality, this top-down focus on high-value targets was inhibiting CJTF-7 efforts to understand and seize the initiative against emerging terrorist and resistance organizations in Iraq. CJTF-7 was still employing a traditional top-down intelligence model in which it might push down intelligence and a list of targeted individuals, compounds, and organizations to its divisions. However, the operational command was not using intelligence generated by its divisions to synthesize a common operating picture of the security situation across Iraq. Sanchez's intelligence director, Brigadier General Barbara Fast, attempted to fix the dearth of intelligence resources by asking the 900-man Iraq Survey Group for assistance. However, Major General Keith W. Dayton, the ISG leader, rebuffed her request. Meanwhile, the theater-level intelligence assets that CJTF-7 did have access to tended to draw the commander's attention toward foreign fighters who used technology to communicate instead of the former regime elements and tribal networks who communicated by word of mouth along complex, interconnected family lines. CJTF-7 overestimated the number and prominence of foreign fighters and foreign terrorist organizations while underestimating and failing to target the extensive tribal and nationalist influence of some of the former Baathist organizations. It also failed to detect the evolving alliances between tribes and Islamist terrorist organizations in the summer and early fall of 2003, all factors that were creating a broader Iraqi insurgency. The coalition divisions also had difficulty understanding this new kind of enemy organization, and they developed their own independent assessments that were often biased and oversimplified. General Martin Dempsey saw his enemy in Baghdad as threefold. Fedayeen and other former regime paramilitary units that survived the invasion, criminal activity, and Islamic extremists, with Ansar al-Islam chief among them. Since they viewed extremism as the greatest and most unpredictable threat, Dempsey and his 1st Armored Division primarily focused their operations against Sunni Islamist extremists and terrorists and their associated networks moving in and out of Baghdad. In Anbar, meanwhile, Swanick recalled that his biggest headaches came from the networks of fighters that were blossoming in Fallujah, Habaniya, and Al-Qaim. Swanick and his command identified some of the key sheikhs involved, but like the 1st Armored Division, they failed to make the connection between disaffected Sunni sheikhs and Islamists. Swanick instead complained that the people of Fallujah lived with a, quote, 16th century mentality, end quote, and a tribal righteousness that was spawning strong tribal alliances against the 82nd Airborne Division and 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment units in the province. In the northern provinces, the 101st Airborne Division and 4th Infantry Division had a focus similar to that of the 1st Armored Division and the 82nd, but the division's close partnerships with the Kurds tended to fuel Sunni discontent as the Kurdish presence in local governments along and beyond the Green Line continued to expand with coalition help. In other words, 
the relationships that had been so useful during the invasion were not entirely productive in the post-invasion period. Although he was not originally on the deck of cards, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi appeared at the top of tactical, operational, and strategic target lists beginning shortly after the August car bombings, marking a shift from the previous practice of including only leaders of the former regime on high-value target lists. As the coalition would later discover, the epicenter of the Sunni insurgent movement in August to October 2003 was in Anbar, where insurgents aimed to defeat the Iraqi police and control the border areas, both of which were necessary for insurgent groups to expand their operations. Police in Fallujah and Ramadi and in the border towns of Al-Qa'im, Kuseba, and Rutba were attacked repeatedly. Kuseba and Al-Qa'im were also valuable to insurgents because of their location along the same smuggling routes that Saddam's regime had used during the sanctions period, and the profits available from black market trade routes in the area led to the rise of a sizable former Ba'athist criminal syndicate from within the Sunni insurgency. The coalition did not yet realize that these activities provided resources and momentum for the various Sunni terrorist and resistance groups. However, the coalition did correctly assess that the Islamist terrorist groups in Iraq were becoming increasingly capable and dangerous. In the wake of the CPA and Iraqi Governing Council's debathification measures, groups affiliated with al-Qaeda and Zarqawi's Toid wal-Jihad in Fallujah began recruiting directly from some of the former regime organizations that were blossoming in the province. Zarqawi's rise and his polarizing influence also created schisms within the resurgent Ansar al-Islam. Many Ansar al-Islam members who had fled to Iran after the April 2003 battle against the coalition ultimately left the group to join either Zarqawi or a new Ansar al-Islam splinter group, Ansar al-Sunnah. International support for the Iraq insurgency also gained more traction. During a summit of al-Qaeda leaders in Pakistan in November 2003, Osama bin Laden announced that al-Qaeda would begin providing $1.5 million per month to the Iraqi insurgency, and he subsequently ordered two associates, Hassan Ghul and Abdul Hadi al-Iraqi, to carry that message and a war plan for jihad in Iraq to Zarqawi and other like-minded militant leaders. In a stroke of good fortune, the U.S. military unexpectedly intercepted that correspondence in early 2004. End of Chapter 8, Part 1, Muddling Through, August to October 2003. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.